Good morning, everyone. My name is Muliadi. Today, we, I will be reading the scripture from Luke 23, verse 26 to 37. I invite you to open your Bible and read along with me. Luke 23, verse 26 through 37, the crucifixion. And as they led him away, they sized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they, they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of Jews, save yourself. This is the word of God. Well, good morning, Solano. I'm uh, happy to be here. And a little relieved to be here because I flew in this morning. So um, I was like, man, don't want to miss that flight. Had a little scare where I um, couldn't find my wallet for like 20 minutes yesterday, last night. So my brain flashed to calling Pastor Andrew. I'm like, sorry, I can't be there. <laughs> Good luck. But uh, I found it. Um, the reason why was because... Um, my family and I, we took a trip to Joshua Tree, and we went backpacking. We took all the kids, and there they are. Those are our three kids. So those are full packs. Look at that. I'm very proud of them for how they uh, uh, carried the weight and mostly didn't complain a little bit. They, they did well, though. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so we went to the Joshua Tree, uh, the, the desert, and we had to carry in our own water. And, you know, we had one interesting experience where the, the ranger told us that, you know, you're, we were trying to go to this Lost Palms Oasis. Like, in the middle of the desert, there's a bunch of palm trees that just pop up. The Lost Palms Oasis. And she said, you know, before you get to that, I recommend you take your packs off and find your camping spot. Because it gets really hard right at the end. And so, sure enough, we decided to do that. So two miles in, we hiked about five, 600 feet off the trail. That was like the most fun part was finding our campsite just randomly in the desert. Just, we had to find a spot that was just for us. It was really cool. No one knew where it was. We were the only ones that knew where it was. And then, sure enough, we hiked to, to um, the Lost Palms Oasis, and it was hard. 
And I remember thinking we would have died if we tried to carry our packs all the way there. And I remember thinking myself, I wanted to do that out of my own sense of accomplishment. But I was glad that the ranger gave us that instructions so that we knew what to do so we could make it to our destination and enjoy it, actually. It would have been really painful. Everyone would have hated life. But we enjoyed the last, because it's really up and down, up and down. Um, And we haven't backpacked in five years, so we are out of backpacking shape. So um, my point is, is that, you know, that ties a little bit into our series Our our Easter series is called Pilgrims to Paradise. God wants us to get to the destination. And he he has told us how to get there. He has told us how we're going to make it to the paradise. And so we want to listen to him, right? We want to listen to how God says to do it um, so we don't get overwhelmed by the journey and have to quit uh, and not make it to the, de- the destination. So the motif for this series is we're going to be looking at the last seven sayings of Jesus. We're going to do that this year over the Easter week and um, as well as next year. So we're going to take two, t- we're going to, we already have the Easter series worked out for next year. So Pastor Andrew feels great about that. <laughs> and, um, and we're going to look at the last seven sayings um, because these are really some of the most powerful passages about um, what it means to be a pilgrim to paradise. What does it mean for us to be followers of Jesus and to be able to make it to our destination? The, the gospels spend an inordinate amount of time. So those are the four um, uh, books of the Bible that are they're specifically about Jesus' life. And they spend an inordinate amount of time on the last week of his life. Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday. They spend like a third of the time just on that part. And so it's really the pinnacle of the gospel stories. And really what happens on the cross, what Jesus does on the cross is really the pinnacle of the pinnacle. It's where we see who God is, his love for us, most clearly and powerfully displayed. So I think it is a worthy thing for us to um, study these passages and to understand um, what is God like? And I think the way this is going to help us is it's really, I think these passages, these seven passages, they're like an anchor for our soul. That's what, at least what they've been for me, right? Uh, they've been this kind of unshakable foundation because there are certain times when there are questions about the Bible that I can't answer. I lead a, a Bible study with some junior high boys, and they ask some questions I sometimes don't know the answer uh, easily. I, I don't know how to answer um, certain questions of doubt and faith for myself sometimes, and even I certainly don't feel like I always measure up as the Christian that I ought to be. And so what I have to do is I have to go back to my base. I have to go back to what is it that God did for me on the cross. I have to always work out from there, and then I can stand on that. So questions like, who is God? What is God like? What does he want for us? How can we be sure of our status with God? We can't answer those questions apart from seeing what God does for us here um, in these scenes on the cross with Jesus. Um, G.K. Chesterton has this great analogy where 
He talks about doubt. He talks about aspects of the Christian faith that we don't understand. Aspects of the Christian faith that we can't answer all the questions. And he says the Christian faith, and really what he means by that is the understanding of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, who, came, who created us and loved us and died for us and redeems us. Um, he says it's like looking at the sun. And the sun, when you look at it, is actually blurry. There's parts of it you can't make out. And the reason why it's blurry, though, is because our eyes can't handle it. Okay, the human eyes, it it's, can't quite handle the intensity of the sun's light. And so that is the nature of God. It's, he's so um, beyond our ability to fully comprehend that there are going to be aspects of faith that are blurry, but there is a bright, shining center that we cannot deny. And that is what these scenes are. That's what they are for me. And I hope that's what they are for us as Christians. I think that's what they're meant to be. The bright, burning center of who God is that we can't deny and because of it, it makes everything else clear. And so um, that's the journey we are on. We are pilgrims to paradise. We want to um, know how to get to our destination, know who God is, how to stay steadfast in that. And I hope these passages, passages do that. I hope Palm Sunday, Good Friday, all of Easter week sets us on the right course and in the right way to our destination. So today's passage that you heard Muliadi read, I like to call it, I was thinking about this because I was like, how do I relate this to Palm Sunday? It's kind of the anti-Palm Sunday. It's like the exact opposite of Palm Sunday, right? In Palm Sunday, Jesus, right, he rides in triumphantly on the donkey. The donkey symbolizes uh, victory. It symbolizes the king coming in peace because he won a, a, a victory against his enemies. It symbolizes um, royalty and it symbolizes um, humility and the people are singing the people are happy right but but after um, in just a short time uh, the the disciples uh, abandon Jesus one of them betray him the powers that be condemn him to death and pretty and in, and instead of being able to carry his own cross instead of coming in triumphantly on a donkey he has to have somebody carry his cross for him because of the beating he received from the Roman guards. And so as the son of God who taught us to love our neighbor, to care for the poor, to give away power in order to serve, this man is being crucified unjustly. The people are watching. The soldiers are mocking him as they execute him. The leaders are scoffing at him and gloating victory. And Jesus utters these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So before I try to do justice to, the, to this passage, and I will certainly fail, but I'm going to try to preach on this, I want us to feel the power of these words because they are self-evident without a sermon, aren't they? We know what they mean. We know what the Son of God just uttered. Rather than um, future, ven rather than saying a, a line of future vengeance or even being silent, he makes a cry of compassion for his enemies who are executing him, really murdering him. 
And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And what that word forgiveness means here is it doesn't, it means something that's theologically very deep. It doesn't just mean let it go and move on. Forgiveness, um, biblically speaking, when, the, when God talks about forgiveness, he's saying this. God, Jesus is essentially saying this. God, make a way to bring them, these who are scoffing and mocking and watching and murdering me, and make a way for these people to be in a relationship with us that we may love them and that they may love us. That's what Jesus is praying for. Father, forgive them. Make a way for us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, to love them, to be intimate with them. That's what he's praying as they're murdering him. That's his prayer. This is the heart of God. I don't think I need to say much to let that sink in. This is a passage to, to let just to dwell with, to sit with, to think on, to pray on, to see what it says about the character of your creator, of your savior, who you are looking for and searching for, for your security, for your purpose in life, for your joy in life. This is who you are looking for. This is what you are looking for. This God who loves you and offers this unfathomable forgiveness, this divine forgiveness. <clears throat> now, I am going to preach a sermon on this, and I'm going to preach it based on the tension that this prayer creates. We'll notice here that Jesus does not forgive them. He prays for forgiveness. That's different. Now, Jesus has, at this point, already offered forgiveness in the Gospel of Luke. He, we know we, he can do it. He's, in fact, that's part of why he's being crucified, because he offered forgiveness earlier, and the Pharisees were like, wait a second, only God can do that. And so here, though, he withholds forgiveness, yet he prays for it. And the reason why is because Jesus only offers forgiveness to those who express faith to those who recognize him as the Messiah. And he says, your sins are forgiven. They were recognizing him as the Messiah to get healing, but Jesus says, this goes way deeper. You're forgiven of your sins. But what we have here are not people who are expressing faith. They are hostile to God. So the question I want to answer is, how did God answer this prayer? How did God answer Jesus' prayer that uh, God essentially make a way to forgive them? And so I think he did that in two ways. I think there are two barriers that God had to deal with to answer this prayer. Forgive them, they know not what they do. Um, and so <clears throat> the first barrier that God had to remove A cell phone went off. Why was that so funny this time? Um, oh, yeah. All right. I put my, my note. There's my notification, but I put it on silent. Oh. Um, 
two barriers that God had to remove in order to forgive us. And the first barrier is our ignorance. Notice that Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Their ignorance of who Jesus was was leading them to commit atrocities, murderous atrocities against the Son of God. And what you heard uh, Muliadi read, I don't know if you caught this, but the, the daughters of, or the, 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 um, the people are weeping over Jesus. And Jesus says, you think this is bad? You think this is bad? Wait till I'm not here. It's going to get even worse. If they're doing this to me now, wait till I'm gone. That's what he says. And so ignorance towards Jesus, ignorance of who he is, is what causes us, because of that ignorance, to do murderous acts against God and one another. Now the fact that we are ignorant is not an excuse before God. This is a category that um, uh, I, I refer to as culpable ignorance. Ignorant, but you're, you're still responsible for that. For example, one time <clears throat> I got a speeding ticket and I was in a school zone. Speeding through a school zone. Now, there are signs. Have you ever seen a school zone? There are signs everywhere, okay? But because I was in college, so I was in that state of being young and aloof to the rules, and my dad was paying for everything, so I wasn't really caring if I got a ticket. I was not paying attention, plus I was in a hurry. I honestly did not realize it was a school zone. I was ignorant. However, I should have known. So the police officer that pulled me over, he had compassion on me and gave me a ticket for speeding. And said, now you know. A little bit of compassion, but I was ignorant. So that's kind of what is going on in the Bible. The Bible is going to say that it is obvious all the signs are right in front of you of who God is. It is actually obvious. In fact, let's read it here. Romans 1, 18 through 20 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The things that have been made clearly demonstrate a lot of who God is. We should be able to look at the world and say, there is a God. And we should even be able to know some things about God. <clears throat> now let me illustrate this for us to help us see. This is the Bible. I don't want to make you guys feel dumb, but the Bible is saying it's obvious. And let me give you an illustration. Imagine you walked into a forest and saw that little guy right there. That's a snowman. And I were to ask you, who made the snowman? Or what made the snowman? What would every single human, what would every rational person say? A person made that, right? But wait a second. Did you see 
the person to make that snowman? Is there DNA evidence that a human being made that snowman? Is there video evidence? Well, then how can you know? The snowman is the evidence. In fact, it's perfectly obvious just the existence of that snowman that someone made that. You could say, in fact, you could even say more about that. Who makes snowmen? Do axe murderers make snowmen? Happy people make snowmen. And I will add, not to push this too far, but usually you do it with people in community, right? So God is triune. But sometimes you make them by yourself, so don't want to push that too far. You know what we humans do? We look at a snowman and say, oh yeah, a human being made that. No problem. Don't even question it. Look at this. Look at what we see in nature. Look at the ocean. Look at the magnificence of the solar system, how fine-tuned everything is, and the human being himself and says, well, we can't know. We can't know. And God is saying, you guys, come on. It is obvious. But actually, that's not even the strongest evidence that God has given us. Listen to, listen to Paul trying to convince a group of pagans to believe. <clears throat> Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the, the, that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And so the Bible does not expect us to believe on blind faith. The Bible wants us to use our brains to see the proof of it everywhere in creation to say there's got to be a God, but what is this God like exactly? And now we have the proof of it in the resurrection of Jesus as a historical fact. The Bible wants you to put your faith in the facts. The Bible doesn't want you to put your faith in do you feel like it's true, does it make you warm and fuzzy? The Bible says, no, this is verifiably true. This is historical fact. God raised him from the dead. And so no matter the cultural background, no matter your, how old you are, what, what generation you were born in, no matter what part of the world you were born in, this is true for you. God did this in history so that the whole world would know who God is what the victory God has won for all mankind. And so the ignorance got a pass before, which meant God did not destroy us or the world for our many sins. He allowed them to persist because this day was coming. God would judge the world through Jesus. But he wanted us to have this, this proof of his love in the person of Christ, to go to all the nations first. And so the ignorance, the time of ignorance is over. Um, 
And so we are to put our faith in Jesus. And so I would say this, this is where faith ought to begin. If you are here wanting to, you have questions about Christianity, or you yourself are struggling, maybe you believe you're struggling with doubts, I want to say again that this place, Jesus' death and resurrection, is where faith ought to start. If that is true, there are answers to all the other questions. If God raised Jesus from the dead, then God is real, Jesus is real, Scripture is trustworthy, um, the resurrection is the final proof, and you can stand on that, you can surrender your life to that by believing in that truth, even though you're not sure of the rest. That truth you can stand on. Paul said it like this, if Christ hasn't been raised, our faith is in vain, and Christians are to be pitied above all else. We are not trying to sell you a religious system. We're not trying to tell you how to improve your life. This is not a man-made system to bamboozle you to give more money. This is Jesus, this is God doing something in history and declaring the good news that he has accomplished it. And so, um, this is something that has helped me, especially early in my faith, is to look at the evidence for this. Um, Lee Strobel wrote an excellent defense of Christianity from an evidential standpoint, a scientific and historical evidence. And he quotes this man, this was crazy, Lionel Lucku had over 245 consecutive murder acquittals. This is a, wow, I mean, is that even... How did he do that? Well, later in life, he became a Christian in his 60s. He devoted his whole skill set of investigating and trying cases to the case of the resurrection. And he concluded that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. And so... Friends, many, many, many people, much smarter than me, who are gifted in scholarship, gifted in science, gifted in journalism, gifted in lawyerism. <laughs> what is that? Um, law. Gifted in law. Okay. That was a lot easier than, <laughs> made that a lot harder. Go to the next slide. Um, so those are just some examples. Those are all books that have helped me a ton. Um, you can look up. There's so many. And I would encourage that. That can help you. However, our problem is actually deeper than rational. Deeper than, than what faith or what evidence can get through. In other words, God can show us all the proof in the world, and that's not really going to make a difference. And here's why. If you go back to our passage, maybe you caught this. In Romans, Paul said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So notice what this is saying, why we don't believe, why we don't see God. We don't have a rational problem, we have a moral problem. We are so unrighteous, we can't help but want to de reject divine truth. 
We're so bent towards wickedness, we instinctively want to reject the truth of God. So God has to get through to our hearts. Jonathan Edwards argued that our affections, that is the things that we love with our hearts, actually have more sway over us than our wills or our rational functions So that was the failure of the Enlightenment to believe that if we could just think our way into everything that's right, we'll do right. That did not happen. It's actually our affections that um, uh, is what tends to lead us. In other words, our rational functions and our wills follow our affections, the things that our hearts really love. That drives us. We justify it, we rationalize it, and we obey it with our wills, what our hearts love. God has to get here. So we need more than proof to get to here. That won't change us. We'll suppress that. We need something that strikes at our identity, at our core. And I believe this scene is one of those scenes. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This is, a, this is meant to uh, strike us at our hearts. We are to see ourselves in that moment. We are to see ourselves as the ones mocking him, as the ones scoffing at him. There are criminals who are being executed right next to him. And scripture's clear, um, they were being executed righteously. They deserve to die because of their, all of these people are right around Jesus. We're to see ourselves in one of them, deserving of death because of the way we've lived scoffers because of the way we've mocked God, religious scoffers even. We're supposed to see ourselves committing that violence. And here we're supposed to, we see Jesus pray this prayer for, of compassion for us. So specifically, we need to see one major truth to turn our hard hearts to be open to who God is for us. We need to, be, we need to see that we can be forgiven because Christ was punished in our place. And so this is the second barrier that we need to see. The first barrier is ignorance. The other barrier is the barrier of sin. When Jesus cried for God to make a way for his enemies, the character and love of God is being demonstrated in how God answered that prayer by putting Jesus forth to absorb that penalty. And the way this works is that God made a way. God made a way for us to be, for our sin to be atoned for on Jesus, because, of, because of what Jesus did for him to die on our behalf. In other words, Jesus is able to be our representative. He's able to take on the shame of the, the whole family of of human beings who are are descended from Adam. That's why it's important that we're all descended from one man and woman, Adam and Eve, because we're one family and all of us are guilty. And so as a human, he can take on the family uh, name of human being and take on our shame as our representative, take on our guilt as our representative. But because he's also divine, he's able to fully absorb the wrath of God. And so God removed the barrier of sin by making a way his own son he put forward as a propitiation to absorb our 
sin. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He was the provision. His own blood, his own body. The wrath of God is revealed against mankind and poured out on Jesus. And so that's supposed to get to our hearts. Not only is it rationally true and undeniable of who God is, we're to be struck by the fact that God absorbed our sin. That God made a way for us. And what makes this truth so powerful, as I've mentioned before, is he's praying it for praying for it to happen in the midst of his scoffers, in the midst of those murdering him. And so what that means is there's no sin in your life that is not redeemable by the shed blood of Jesus. I, um, <clears throat> there's this, uh, uh, John Bunyan has this, wrote this allegory called Pilgrim's Progress. It's the allegory, allegory of the Christian life. And it's the story of a man named Christian, so not so subtle. And he's on a journey towards heaven. But to get there, to even start the journey, we, we meet Christian. He's got this heavy burden on his back. He's got this huge backpack. It's this ugly backpack. Let's see if we can see a picture of this. He's got this huge backpack on him. And, and through a series of events, he gets to the cross and he's able to take the backpack, lift it, put the backpack off so he can travel on his journey to, to paradise. Travel on his journey to heaven, free of the burden of guilt of sin. Free of the burden of sin. It's this huge backpack. And what's important is he can't even start the journey until this happens. This happens in the beginning of, of the story. God does not want you for one second trying to make it all the way to our destination without knowing the freedom of his forgiveness for the whole entirety of that journey. He travels light the whole journey and so must we as the cross and the shed blood of Jesus allows us to shed that burden of guilt. Early in my life, I did things that were so shameful, I would struggle to accept my life today, to accept for what I have today. Yet because of what Christ did for me, he calls me to follow him free of that, of the sin of my ignorance. When I was hostile to God, and because of that hostility, did unspeakable things, things that are hard to even share about. And so this is what it means to know Christ. This is what it means to know the gospel is to feel that burden lifted and to walk in the security of that forgiveness and then to return there when Satan wants to condemn you and even when your own failures begin to creep in and you're going to have to deal with those failures together, but that burden is gone. That backpack is gone. So Jesus wants you to make you a pilgrim to paradise. And you know the other thing here that's, that's powerful about what happens on when Jesus cries this prayer is that two of those are criminals. They're about to die. Which means they have zero to offer God and his kingdom. They're gone. 
And that tells you that not only is there no sin in our life that is not redeemable, um, that, it, that it must mean that God's offer of forgiveness cannot mean that he is forgiving you to get something from you. Those criminals couldn't give him anything. Jesus is forgiving you to get you. That's it. His forgiveness is to get you. All right? That is what forgiveness means. It's relationship. It's love. It's intimacy. Whether it's at, at the end of, 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 of a life of crime or whether it's right now, he forgives you to get you. So in response, two things. For some of us, you need to be prepared to receive God's forgiveness. Last week, Andrew preached on um, prepared for resurrection. My sermon title was prepared for forgiveness. For some of you, I want you to be prepared to receive God's forgiveness. I want you to be prepared to respond to God's offer, to God's prayer. Because you know what? There are two criminals who are crucified with Jesus and only one of them repents and one of them does not. On Sunday, Andrew's going to preach on that passage so we can see what is the difference between those two. So we can make sure that we are the one that's on the way to paradise, not the one that's left behind. Um, and, so for, and, for, and lastly, for those of us who have received God's forgiveness, let's be prepared to offer Christ-like forgiveness to others. And that is our responsibility. Having received God's forgiveness, listen to this. Ephesians 4, 30, 30 through 32. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Jesus gave us an amazing picture of what it looks like for us to be the church together. We're going to have to forgive each other. Notice, put away anger and malice. And so those emotions are extremely destructive to God's people. But God gives us a provision. He reminds us of two things in this passage. You were sealed for the day of redemption. You are guaranteed on your journey to paradise. You're a pilgrim to paradise, which God has sealed that. And so when your future is secure, we can, it helps us deal with the pain of today. And th those angers and those emotions might be rooted in a real offense. Something really happened, something actually happened. But Christ says, but look at what, look at how Christ forgave you when you were hostile to him. Look at the tenderness, look at the compassion. And so that's something to work out. Here in this sermon, I can't give you all the specifics of that, but let that soften our hearts towards each other as we just absorbed the good news of Christ's forgiveness, many of us having received it, that we would extend that to others. So we want to close today in prayer. We're going to respond by prayer, we left extra time in the service uh, in order to do this. Um, 
and this, we'll do this after communion, just four things to, to, to think about. Obviously, when we do prayer, you can pray for anything. We just want to pray for you as a church. We want to be praying for one another as a church. Number one, who do you want to see become a pil- pilgrim to paradise with you? Who do you want to see join us on our way to heaven, on our way to God's kingdom, to experience the, the, the lightness and freedom of that forgiveness? Pray for them. Sunday is Easter. Who have you been praying for at 938? Let's pray for them here. Invite them to come out on, on Easter as Andrew preaches on um, the thief on the cross. Secondly, what intellectual barriers of doubt and questions are holding you back from living a life in faith in Jesus? Maybe there are some questions and you're just struggling to really be able to say yes to Jesus because of doubts and problems with the Bible, problems with the existence of God, problem with the concept of forgiveness. I don't know what it can be. But there are some things that are just, you're not able to let go. Maybe you do believe but there are some nagging doubts that are hurting you. What are those? Come and, re- and receive prayer. What areas of sin and shame are causing you to struggle to believe in God's forgiveness? I, um, my, my wife's grandfather, I got to meet him once before he died. And he just could not accept that Christ would forgive him at the end of his life just could not accept it and it grieved me and so I don't want you to fall in that same trap of feeling like I just can't I can't be forgiven I know other people can't but I can't I've been there there are things about I've I've just irrationally thought things about I just this can't be true of me other people yes but not me pray ask God to break through that barrier that you're holding on to and lastly where do you need to extend Christ-like forgiveness to others? All right, so where, where is emotions of anger and bitterness and malice having a grip on you? And sometimes that doesn't mean just put it away and do nothing. Sometimes it means you need to go to that person. You need to figure out how to resolve it. But move towards forgiveness and with a tender heart. How do you need to do that? Father God, as I pray to you, I'm thinking about that I can pray to you as Father because of what Jesus prayed here for me and for us, that you would have compassion on us because we didn't know who you were. We didn't understand what it meant, even though it's obvious. And even when some of us, some of us said with our lips that we believed in you and yet our actions betrayed us, yet you still had compassion on us. Yet your mercy washed over us so that we saw and believed in what you did for us on that cross. We saw our sin on that cross. And we received that forgiveness. Lord, I thank you for how you've worked that in so many of us so that we may be pilgrims to paradise together. And I am one of those. So thank you that we can pray to you as Father, having been forgiven, that we are now with you. You love us. We know you. We love you. You know and love us. And our day of redemption is sealed. 
Lord, I pray for anyone struggling here to believe that. Help them break through their barriers. Let them know you as, as you are. And Lord, let us extend that forgiveness to others. So I pray that you would do acts in people's lives of reconciliation, acts of forgiveness. Lord, that would be our resume as a church before you is this, is this forgiveness, Lord. This acts of forgiveness, Lord. Do that great work in us, Lord. I pray for our time of prayer. Open up people's hearts to share the things that are burdening them and are heavy. And bless that time, Lord. Pray this in Christ's name.